Hello and welcome to the Spine Nerve Podcast. My name is Dr. Brian Hovez. And my name is Dr. Nicholas Carvelis. And today we are going to be talking about peripheral neuropathy um, or neuropathic pain, maybe in general, but kind of specifically talking about peripheral neuropathy. Um, this is a diagnosis that probably still today is underdiagnosed, um, definitely undertreated, uh, and something that can cause a lot of um, kind of morbidity for patients as their and it affects their quality of life pretty significantly. Uh, Dr. K, why don't you give us a little bit of uh, introduction and background into what uh, your uh, talking points usually are for peripheral neuropathy. Yeah, absolutely. <coughs> and what we want to really focus on today is to give a brief background on neuropathic pain in the setting of painful peripheral neuropathy but then also spend a lot of time focusing on the treatment because I think that's something that is very difficult even for, even for providers that see neuropathic pain on a day-to-day basis multiple times a day. It is still an incredibly difficult condition to treat. But starting out with just some consideration of how common uh, peripheral neuropathy is and the common causes of it. So as we all know, neuropathic pain is uh, fairly common condition that patients deal with. You'll see studies uh, uh, quoting it to be affecting up to 3% of the general population. But if we think about it more in the context of the patients that we see on a day-to-day basis, although we know that idiopathic uh, uh, peripheral neuropathy is the most common cause of peripheral neuropathy, um, uh, because there are so many different causes of peripheral neuropathy and ultimately unfortunately oftentimes we don't end up determining the exact cause that being said for the causes that we can identify we know that diabetic peripheral neuropathy is the most uh, common cause that we come come across uh, clinically and just to give a sense within that diabetic patient population uh, up to 25 percent uh, you'll see studies documenting up to 25% of those patients will be dealing with painful peripheral neuropathy that's significantly affecting their lives. So if we think about how many patients we see or that we uh, treat that have diabetes, then you can think that, the, that a decent uh, proportion of those patients will be dealing with this difficult-to-treat condition. Yeah, and so diabetes absolutely is the most common that we know about. I think it's the, you know, it's the one that gets advertised on TV. It's the way that people generally think about peripheral neuropathy in layman's terms. Um, you know, for us, it's kind of uh, peripheral neuropathy is, I feel like, the bane of a PM&R or probably a neurologist uh, resident uh, existence because when we do our like nerve conduction study conferences, we talk about peripheral neuropathy and uh, the, the differential. And you know, I still remember you know being a PGY two walking in the first time uh, to this conference, and literally they list off you know forty seven different causes of peripheral neuropathy and talking about you know everything from you know diabetes, which I think is what you know most people will think about and will remember for you know step one and step two of your boards, um, but then going all the way uh, to different you know, deficiencies, nutritional deficiencies, um, you know, various medications that can all cause peripheral neuropathy, um, you know, very rare uh, diseases that can affect them, you know, and, and so it's, uh, it does, I think, present, especially for a junior resident, a very daunting um, diagnostic proposition. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I think a, a good general approach when you have a patient who comes in with signs and symptoms that you're concerned about for, for neuropathic pain, and as we all know, that would be pain that is fairly constant, oftentimes worse at night and has the burning electrical sensation to it. Um, <laughs> when, when you have a patient that you are uh, concerned about that neuropathic pain in the setting of pain and, and setting of peripheral neuropathy, I think a good general approach is to say, okay, uh, we're going to rule out the common and uh, uh, not necessarily curable, but somewhat treatable conditions. Uh, for example, we know with painful diabetic peripheral neuropathy, there's multiple studies showing that if you can ob obtain better control of the diabetes itself, then you can have a positive impact on that neuropathic pain. So thinking to ourselves, okay, commonly diabetes, thyroid, common vitamin deficiencies, these are things that we can fairly easy, easily diagnose uh, with lab, lab studies and other diagnostic workup, and we can somewhat make a positive impact on those. So when you have a <coughs> patient you're concerned about ordering the basic uh, tests, which as I mentioned would in include but not limited, not be limited to diabetes, thyroid, uh, common vitamin deficiencies, and then ordering an EMG nerve conduction study, I think those are all reasonable first steps before potentially sending on to a specialist for further evaluation. And the other thing that I think is good to do and, and you don't have to, uh, uh, you know, you can do it fairly efficiently and quickly is just to keep in mind that sure, this could be and most likely is idiopathic peripheral neuropathy or a common uh, cause such as diabetes or thyroid that we mentioned. But we also know that perineoplastic syndromes uh, or other more ominous um, uh, diagnoses can cause uh, neuropathic pain. So it's, it's very reasonable, just like you would with a back pain patient, um, to quickly go over red flag signs and symptoms. And then, of course, once that patient uh, uh, undergoes their EMG, then that may lead more, uh, to more concern for such a condition. So ordering those basic labs, doing a quick screen for red flags, and sending uh, for a nerve EMG nerve conduction study would be a good reasonable approach for any patient that comes in with neuropathic pain. Yeah, I think that's absolutely a, a perfect uh, way to start. You know, and so you know, we have neuropathic pain. We have something that's affecting the somatosensory system. Um, you know, we try to find any ways that we can uh, optimize our overall uh, health and system by being able to you know replace any vitamin deficiencies or or, or treat uh, any underlying uh, diseases. But there, you know, as we said with the common or most common thing being idiopathic or we as a medical community can't figure out what the diagnosis is, uh, there still are a significant amount of things uh, that will continue to cause peripheral neuropathy or uh, probably even better said, even if you treat them or when you treat them or when you have well-controlled diabetes, you can still develop uh, these symptoms, right? And so, you know, I, I think when people come in, you know, yes, they talk about uh, the numbness, they talk about the burning, um, yes, usually worse at nighttime is uh, very common for uh, peripheral neuropathy and any neuropathic pain for that matter. Um, you know, the thought process being that the the fibers that are sending this uh, painful burning signal are a little bit easier to be overrun and distracted uh, during the daytime and when there's other things going on. Um, but, you know, these symptoms can progress pretty significantly for patients. You know, we have patients that have difficulty putting on socks and shoes, you know, have trouble walking um, because of it. You know, obviously, if there's a significant numbness component to it, also, you know, then you have uh, the imbalance uh, and the uh, the gait difficulties that come from not knowing where their feet are, in addition to uh, some painful properties. Um, so it can become a pretty uh, devastating uh, disease process for quite a few people. 
Yeah, <clears throat> and in that setting, um, we can kind of move to what the potential treatment options are uh, for these patients. So, there, if, when you look at the literature, there are uh, 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 professional guidelines, especially Dr. Finnerup does a good job of putting out a treatment algorithm for neuropathic pain. And I like his studies because they typically have a, a number need to treat, uh, which I think is always a, an important number for us to look at and a humbling number for us to look at when we actually look at the data in terms of the number of patients need to treat to actually get a, one patient to have a good response. Yeah, and good, good response for those studies is 50% uh, or more pain relief. Right, and, and so I think, I think Dr. Hoves and I will both kind of present our, our typical approach uh, in terms of medications uh, and trying to not only take the research that's out there, including those uh, guidelines, but also our clinical experience. Um, and those guidelines often break down the treatments into first line, second line, third line, and fourth line uh, treatment options for different uh, conditions, and they will differ a little bit uh, depending upon the uh, specific condition you're treating. As a brief example, um, if you're dealing with someone who has trigeminal neuralgia, you would reach for something like carbamazepine versus that, that wouldn't be the first-line treatment for something uh, like diabetic uh, painful peripheral neuropathy. But for your, for your typical classic patient that uh, is coming in with uh, neuropathic pain, whether that's due to an idiopathic painful peripheral neuropathy, whether that's due to spinal cord injury. Um, for these patients, I think it's good to always think of two main things. Number one, what's gonna be the safest and most likely to help this patient, but then also look at the comorbidities. I guess that's one of the things I'd like to drive, drive home, and that's what I always think about with the patient is, okay, looking at this patient, looking at their comorbidities, their kidney function, their liver function, what's gonna be effective and safe. But then the other thing I always think about is what are these patients' comorbidities and therefore is there a specific neuropathic pain uh, treatment option that may be really effective? Because unfortunately for a lot of these patients that are dealing with severe neuropathic pain, they do have a lot of other comorbidities. Uh, uh, for example, they may be very depressed or anxious. And in that setting, we know that uh, SNRIs, including duloxetine, have good evidence. So maybe that is something you consider uh, first and foremost in terms of your uh, different treatment options. Yeah, and I think one of the challenges with uh, peripheral neuropathy generally is, like you said, the patients do tend to have comorbidities. They have other medical diagnoses. Um, and as we do get a little bit more into the um, the data as, uh, that Dr. Finnerup, shout out Dr. Finnerup, by the way, every three or four years he updates um, this massive compendium of uh, literature on neuropathic pain uh, and just kind of recreates uh, this algorithm. Uh, and I think anybody who sees this on a regular basis, which by the way is every physician, because this is a very common presentation for people, uh, should at least take a look at one of them. The last one I believe was 2015, um, but which means he's probably due for, for an update soon, but re really fantastic uh, work and definitely kind of a mainstay for all of us pain practitioners or people who see this on a regular basis. Um, but these patients do tend to have a lot of comorbidities and they have a lot of other things that are going on in their lives. And as we look at the data, um, I think it makes it challenging because, you know, just quite frankly, the best data for neuropathic pain from a medication perspective is tricyclic antidepressants. Um, unfortunately, tricyclic antidepressants also have a very high side effect profile, 
Um, and you know, generally speaking, you know, the older a patient is, if they have any cardiac history, you know, things along those lines, we re really don't use that medication because the risks uh, are thought to possibly outweigh the benefits, despite the fact that it does have some of the best data for neuropathic pain. Um, and so, you know, when we get started, I, I do think that we still follow a very similar uh, trajectory of treatment uh, algorithm as we do all the rest of the time, right? Talked about lifestyle modifications, you know, allow the patient to understand what's going on. But then if, you know, obviously if it's something that's not necessarily completely de debilitating or interfering with their life, if it's something that they can live with or deal with, start with some more conservative measures, you know, physical modalities, you know, I think I still, I do believe that physical therapy still is a reasonable option to consider. There are some desensitization techniques and, um, you know, that are, that can be really helpful. Uh, data for TENS for peripheral neuropathy is hit or miss, but then again, data for TENS for just about everything is hit or miss. Um, uh, and then, you know, kind of moving up from there, uh, we kind of start to get to into medication things. So when you first see a patient like this uh, and, you know, they're, they're sent to you and you really think that it's, you know, probably more of a peripheral neuropathy um, or, you know, a length-dependent neuropathy, something that's more, uh, not necessarily a, a disease coming from, say, the spine or something like that, like we've talked about, where radiculopathy obviously being a very common thing, I think our minds generally think differently. Um, but what's the first, uh, what's, what are your first thoughts once they've already made those modifications, they've maybe been through some physical therapy, they've adapted their diet, maybe um, they've already been able to, you know, address the diabetes, it's a little bit better controlled, or, you know, they've been diagnosed with thyroid disease and they're back, they're on appropriate medications. Uh, where do you go from there? <clears throat> yeah, so as I was saying, the first thing uh, I would look at is, okay, for this patient, you know, what are their, uh, what are their comorbidities, what are their contraindications for any of the specific first-line medications I may think of? And uh, also in that setting, are there are there any medications that I think can can treat multiple conditions in this patient with one medication? Because we always want to limit uh, polypharmacy. So, sorry that uh, that being said, uh, along those lines, some of the first medications I generally think of for our typical uh, uh, run of the mill. I don't want to uh, <laughs> don't, don't want to uh, use specific words that um, the would, more commonly yeah, yeah. presenting <laughs> peripheral neuropathy patient. Exactly, exactly. for that patient. Some of the first-line medications I generally think of would be uh, gabapentin, obviously. So as we know, uh, gabapentin is an alpha-2-delta calcium channel, channel modulator, uh, similar to pregabalin uh, or Lyrica. And so that would be one of the first medications I think of in general because it has fairly good data behind it. Uh, and in general is fairly well tolerated, although of course uh, we always want to be worried about the potential for uh, confusion, fatigue, and, and increased risk of falls, especially in our elderly population. But with, with all these neuropathic pain medications, the side effect profiles tend to be fairly similar. So you always, and I know we hear this all the time in medicine, but you always want to start at a low dose and gently titrate up. And this is where the patient education is really critical because what you don't want is to start them on you know, a cautious dose of let's say 100 or 300 milligrams at night with a titration schedule up and for them to come back in a month and say that, well, that absolutely didn't work and give up on the medication. So letting them know that, hey, you know, the max dose of this medication is 3,600 milligrams a day. The general dose we need to get to to have a strong effect for these patients tends to be around 600 milligrams three times a day, depending on the patient. So. We're starting at this dose to see the lowest effective dose. 
but also to make sure your body is tolerating it. This has been a process that you know is is brutal to deal with, but it's been going on a long time, and it's going to take a little while for us to get a grasp on it. So, with any of these neuropathic uh, pain medications, I think the education part of it is critical. Um, so, sorry, uh, and just along those lines. I think it's also critical for our other neuropathic pain medications that we commonly use. So aside from gabapentin and pregabalin, we also commonly reach first line for medications uh, like the serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors like duloxetine. So education is critical here as well uh, because um, these patients are going to go to the pharmacy and then they're going to say, I'm not depressed, I'm not anxious. Um, what the heck, why are you giving me an uh, antipsychotic medication uh, for my uh, nerve pain? And we hear that commonly in clinic, patients will come to us and say, well, I didn't like this other provider because they tried to give me a psych med for my uh, pain. So I think the patient education part is critical for a lot of these medications ultimately. Um, So, sorry, to get back to the original uh, question, gabapentin, uh, serotonin, norepinephrine, reuptake inhibitors generally will be some of the medications that I think of uh, first line uh, for the majority of the patients presenting with that condition. Yeah, and so I think that as far as patients coming in, um, because Lyrica is the last one that came off of, um, oh, sorry, mind blank. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Since it was the last one that was owned by a pharmaceutical company, uh, they had the commercials out the longest, and they were the ones that had actually an indication for painful diabetic peripheral neuropathy. Uh, so a lot of patients actually think of Lyrica uh, as patent. Sorry, that's the word I was thinking about. <laughs> <laughs> um, a lot of patients think about Lyrica first line as treatment. Um, and Lyrica is a fine medication. Um, not saying that it's not. There is some, uh, some reasonable data for Lyrica. Uh, it is the most expensive of the three because it was the last one to, uh, to come off of patent. Um, it's now, all three of those are now uh, generic, so they're all significantly cheaper than they were even just a couple of years ago. Um, but interesting, of those three, Lyrica actually has the highest number needed to treat, right? And so, um, which obviously they would never say in their commercial because they're trying to sell medications. Um, but they did a good job of patient education. I think they actually made patients aware of it. Um, you know, we could conversation for another day about whether or not you know pharmaceutical companies should be able to advertise directly to patients uh, to let them know about things. But there was some patient education, and so that people actually understood that this was uh, a disease process that is treatable and that there are options for. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I think those pretty much fall into the first line uh, treatment for uh, painful peripheral neuropathy. Um, like the best data technically in terms of the number needed to treat data from uh, Dr. Finnerup uh, is for duloxetine uh, and then gabapentin and then Lyrica. Um, I believe it's about five uh, and then seven, low sevens and then high sevens of, uh, respectively. Um, and then kind of, we didn't say first line, but uh, obviously if, if somehow a patient is significantly younger, mm-hmm. doesn't have uh, any significant comorbidities. So we saw this a lot with uh, spinal cord injury patients, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when we're treating these patients uh, in the acute rehab setting or uh, in follow-up, a lot of times when you have a spinal cord injury, painful neuropathic uh, processes are very, very common. Uh, and uh, tricyclic antidepressants, uh, when av- available to you be, uh, in your repertoire because the patient doesn't have uh, a lot of comorbidities, uh, actually have the best data for, um, 
for any type of neuropathic pain. And so um, definitely one of the first things that I know that any time that I saw a spinal cord injury patient and they were younger, that was always one of the first things uh, that we'll reach for. Um, uh, and I, I have a preference towards nortriptyline. Um, I know I think a lot of people have a preference towards amitriptyline. Nortriptyline, I th for me at least, has always had a better side effect profile. I think the data skews that way as well. Amitriptyline, I think, actually has a slightly better efficacy. Um, but I, because these are a, a class of medications that do have a very high um, side effect profile, and I think a lot of patients don't tolerate all that well, I've erred on the side of utilizing nortriptyline more, which is uh, a slightly gentler medication, both in terms of efficacy, but also in terms of side effects. Yeah, absolutely. And along those lines, just to drive on the point that Dr. Hovas was bringing up, the number needed to treat for tricyclic antidepressants, if you look at some of the research, including Dr. Fenerps, is more closer to around two or the mid twos, which is quite impressive, especially for a difficult to treat condition like neuropathic pain. Just unfortunately, oftentimes in our elderly population, we are hand handcuffed in the setting of cardiac comorbidities. So yeah, I think that pretty much uh, encapsulates the first um, line of medications that we generally would think of, gabapentin, pregabalin, uh, the SNRIs, including uh, duloxetine, uh, technically uh, melnisopran and uh, venlafaxine are in that SNRI category as well. But in general, I think you need to get to higher doses of those medications uh, with p the potential for higher side effects before you start to get the efficacy that we generally see with duloxetine at a little bit lower doses. And just as a real quick, because I do think duloxetine is very commonly used now in general for pain, because as we know, it's uh, surprisingly actually FDA approved for treatment of chronic musculoskeletal pain um, uh, in addition to neuropathic pain. and so. I think a lot of providers are using duloxetine, especially uh, for the not only improvement of the condition, but also for an opioid sparing effect for patients that are on uh, on medications. So, since it's a commonly used medication, just keep in mind that in general, based on the available data, 60 milligrams is the optimal dose. Above that, in general, we tend to get more side effects uh, with decreasing in improve improvements in efficacy at that point. So you want to start low, use around 20 or 30, and work your way up to 60 in a matter of weeks um, for the optimal effect. Yeah, and that's and a good thing to point out also is that the 60 dosing, for, which is generally thought of as the pain dosing, uh, is lower than the antidepressant dosing. Right, antidepressant dosing for Cymbalta uh, is usually about 120, um, and so. That actually usually helps the conversation with patients, I think, for me sometimes. It's like, uh, it's an antidepressant, but we're actually using it at lower than the doses that are meant to uh, you know, affect uh, your psychology and, psych and psychiatry. And patients, I think, tend to accept that a little bit more. Um, whereas, like you said, especially for some of the other SNRIs, it's not exactly the same. Uh, and so, like for Effexor, um, overall, I've had much less success with Effexor, um, and like you said, it does require higher doses um, and so that's actually usually over the antidepressant uh, dosing for for Effexor so just kind of slight nuances and differences. Um, Cymbalta specifically it, I think that just like gabapentin and, and Lyrica is a medication that a lot of patients do have difficulty tolerating. Um, I almost exclusively start people at 20. Uh, I have in times in the past even gone to you know getting compounded medications down to five milligrams so that people can tolerate it and slowly increasing. Um, it's usually not that bad, but if you start at 20, I think generally people, people do pretty well. Mm -hmm. uh, the one thing I think that we left out from uh, first-line treatments, um, and I specifically didn't talk about this in the physical modalities portion, which is where I would normally talk about it, is uh, topical ointments. Yeah. Um, topical ointments actually have 
phenomenal data, especially for uh, peripheral neuropathies. Mm -hmm. uh, menthol being the main ingredient that has uh, a lot of effect for peripheral neuropathies. Now, not everybody wants to smell like menthol. Not everybody wants to uh, utilize uh, a topical ointment multiple times per day. But the data for it is actually pretty phenomenal. The uh, number of you treat for menthol is also right around two, similar to the tricyclic antidepressants. Um, and so from a you know overall risk-benefit ratio, it is hands down, for me, the best uh, option for patients. Um, now granted, like I said, I, don't, I think a lot of patients don't like that you have to put it on three or four times a day, that you know you have to you know, smell like menthol and all these other things, um, but the data is there, and it's definitely something that I talk about with every single one of these patients. Yeah, absolutely, and along those lines, uh, not necessarily first line because it wouldn't even be covered by insurance for the most part, but for patients w that are not gonna be financially limited, that you're dealing with uh, more localized and very refractory, difficult to treat uh, neuropathic pain, whether that's due, like, uh, due to painful diabetic peripheral neuropathy of the feet that's really localized to the feet and it's been refractory to everything, maybe including the, uh, the covered topicals and maybe even capsaicin, uh, which is also uh, can be effective but um, difficult for patients to do because uh, it's not the most comfortable, obviously, uh, treatment. Um, but along those lines, you can actually even get compounded topicals. Uh, so working with the pharmacist to use a combination of lidocaine and gabapentin and even uh, ketamine with minimal side effect uh, profiles because of the limited systemic uptake, but then uh, uh, potential significant improvement for these more refractory uh, conditions. Yeah, I, 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 I just wanted to kind of echo that because I love that idea. I love compounded creams for this reason. Right? I'll always start with something with just menthol, um, but adding in some of those other uh, agents in a topical formulation, I have found to be extremely beneficial for patients. Yeah. So uh, just real quickly, I know we spent a, a long time on that uh, specifically, but if the, you know, the patient comes in, they're not responding to topicals, they're not responding or not tolerating the gabapentin pregabalin, the, the SNRIs, the TCAs, um, is there anything else that we can potentially reach for at that point? You know, I would say for myself, uh, clinically, um, uh, I do sometimes uh, utilize medications like sodium channel blockers or NMDA antagonists in uh, difficult to treat refractory uh, pain conditions, uh, uh, neuropathic pain conditions. So specifically, sometimes I will utilize topiramate, uh, which again is not without uh, the potential for side effects. I know it has a nickname of Dopamax uh, uh, because it can affect uh, cognition. but Again, as long as started at a low dose, uh, and I generally use it just at nighttime, um, sometimes you can have a positive effect, especially for the patients who have severe neuropathic pain at night that are difficulty sleeping. And then the other medication that I sometimes have benefit with is uh, memantine or Namenda. I know the evidence out there is very conflicting, but uh, there are some exciting studies on it. For example, more recently, a randomized controlled trial for fibromyalgia, which uh, we won't get into too much today, but a very interesting thing about fibromyalgia is that for people who really are interested in small fiber uh, peripheral painful neuropathy, so that's a difficult diagnosis to treat. It doesn't show up on our EMG nerve conduction study. Uh, the gold standard for diagnosing at this point is actually a skin biopsy. But what's really interesting is if you take a fibromyalgia patient population, you'll find that, that actually the majority of those patients, uh, based on the studies that have been done in this, actually technically fulfill the diagnostic criteria for small fiber painful peripheral neuropathy based on the skin biopsy. So 
What's interesting is that these fibromyalgia patients tend to respond to medications like memantine remenda, and what are the other FDA-approved medications for fibromyalgia? Pregabalin, uh, uh, duloxetine, and memisoprine. So these are all neuropathic uh, uh, pain-treating conditions. So that, it's just something, like I said, way too deep of a topic, topic to get into today, but uh, those are some of the other medications, sodium channel blockers, NMDA antagonists, that I'll sometimes think of for patients that are not responding to our other uh, initial tr treatment options. Uh, thanks. I, you know, I have two topics uh, that I want to finish up with, um, and uh, sorry for taking this a little long. I think both Dr. Carvelis and I both uh, went a little bit deeper into some of the stuff that we had initially anticipated. First, I want to address the elephant in the room, uh, opiates, right? Uh, opiates are, technically speaking, an, an option for peripheral neuropathy. Um, they actually do have halfway decent data um, for peripheral neuropathy, um, but because of the fact that we all know everything that's going on with opiates, we don't uh, think that they're great options for long-term treatment, uh, and obviously all of the risks of side effects, um, and including uh, abuse and things along those lines, um, they are considered to be third-line uh, treatments uh, for, op uh, for uh, peripheral neuropathy. Um, kind of want to leave it at that because I think we've talked a lot about opiates already. I don't know if you have anything else that you wanted to add in saying that. I would just mention real briefly, of those opioid medications, um, tramadol, obviously because it has serotonin norepinephrine re reuptake inhibition activity, would be a more ideal choice and, and based on the available research, a little lower risk compared to some of the other opioids. And then similarly, buprenorphine actually has better data than a lot of the other opioids for treatment of neuropathic pain and also uh, safer based on the available data. So if you do reach for an opioid, potentially utilizing uh, buprenorphine or tramadol would be a better option than going for Norco or Percocet or something like that. And then uh, kind of lastly, for very refractory pain, patient, patients aren't t either tolerating medications or the medications aren't doing enough for them. Um, you know, we really want to try to stay away from opioids as a long-term option uh, for patients. Uh, and sometimes even the opiates aren't necessarily covering them as much as uh, we'd like to. Uh, one of the things that I think there's continuing developing research, um, but definitely some research that even came out 15, 20 years ago, um, neuromodulation, right? Spinal cord stimulation, uh, which recently has uh, evolved into not just dorsal column stimulation, which is the leads on uh, the back portion of the spinal cord, um, but also uh, dorsal ganglion stimulation. So specifically being able to target um, the dorsal uh, ganglion of those kind of lower portions. So specifically for uh, diabetic peripheral neuropathy, going down towards the uh, S1 uh, levels, S2 sometimes in uh, L5. And so this is an option that um, there has been success. I wouldn't say good success at this point. I say it's still evolving, um, but uh, there has been there has been success in refractory cases uh, of peripheral neuropathy, uh, being able to stimulate the the nervous system uh, and be able to modulate the way that those painful signals are being processed, um, both through the dorsal. Uh, root ganglion and as well as in the dorsal columns, um, where those pain fibers are being sent. Um, at, at some point soon, uh, I think we've specifically stayed away from uh, diving too deep into neuromodulation. We will probably do a three or four part series on neuromodulation coming up soon just to kind of give an introduction uh, and then kind of a deeper dive into some of the uh, research and the ways that we've been utilizing uh, these devices. Um, but I wanted to make sure that we at least brought that up in this setting because I think that there uh, there is ongoing research. There's currently a multi-center, um, large-scale, randomized controlled trial being done by uh, Nevro uh, for per peripheral neuropathy. There have been numerous studies that came out um, in the early 2000s uh, that were promising. Um, and, you know, I've 
uh, personally seen you know a handful of patients that have uh, done really well with peripheral neuropathy. I will say it's not necessarily as much of a home run for these for these patients as it, it is for some patients with other diagnoses, say complex regional pain syndrome or um, you know, lumbar post-laminectomy syndrome, but there has been uh, a, a good amount of success. And like I said, these are usually cases that have been refractory to everything else. Uh, and so to be able to get, say, a 50% improvement in a case that hasn't been touched by anything else, I think is actually pretty impressive. Uh, anything you wanted to add, Dr. K? No, that's good. And thank you guys again for uh, listening and have a great rest of the week. All right. Once again, uh, thanks for all that you guys do in terms of listening to our podcast. We appreciate it. Uh, if there Uh, is any questions about anything that we talked about today by all means please feel free to reach out to us Uh, and once again this is not uh, meant to be medical advice Uh, this is podcast is for education and information only Uh, if any of the things that we discussed today you think pertain to you please discuss with a medical professional this does not establish a physician patient relationship have a great day